Amen. Good morning. God's word is life and healing to all your flesh, so we will be reading to you from the book of Matthew, life and healing to all your flesh. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have, excuse me, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has only one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. And we pray that the eyes of our understanding would continuously be open. That we would not only hear, but we would have ears that hear what the Spirit is saying what you desire for us to hear, and what you desire for us to live into. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Um, I had mentioned last week we were going to try to move from Moses and hopefully get through, I'm hoping to get through the rest of the Old Testament with this scripture, and then going back and looking at some things. So you can keep praying right now. Anyway, um, there's two big things. Can you imagine, do you ever read these, these accounts, not only in the gospel, but in other ways, and you think, wow, that seems like a pretty extreme response to what Jesus does, right? The last verse here in uh, twelve fourteen. but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him because he healed a guy that had a withered hand. Like, why the extreme response? Such extreme reaction from the religious leaders. Why was there such extreme reaction when it came to the temple? Everyone say temple. And it came to unlawful practices on the Sabbath, or you could say when it came to the law and the old covenant. Why such extreme, intense Reaction. I mean, that's everybody I think would agree that it's hard for us to wrap our arms around the extremeness of this response to Jesus 
doing two things. He talks about, the reason I wanted to use this scripture is there's two things, and he does it multiple times in the Gospels. He, he goes after two different issues, two different, uh, two different big kind of points in the Old Covenant that he wants them to understand is being fulfilled by him, and it's coming to an end, and it's hard. The two primary points as we, there's two primary points as we continue this journey through the Bible, and it's these two points. The Old Covenant, when Jesus starts to talk about the Sabbath and the laws and the regulations, that inflamed the religious leaders and others, lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, they had a lot of vested stuff, and then also the temple. Why is it? What is such a big, huge deal? Now, the Old Covenant, some of us would refer to it as the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant really kind of gets its traction in the book of Exodus. It's kind of the story arc from the book of Exodus, in other words, from Moses through the end of Malachi. We see the Old Covenant or the law. It's the covenant that God made with ancient Israel. It's a covenant that God breathed into existence with the people Israel to utilize the nation of Israel. Remember, we said a couple weeks ago to bring blessing through Abraham and Sarah through the nation of Israel to all nations and all people. That all nations, everyone say this after me, all nations and all people would be blessed. Let's say it again. That all people and all nations would be blessed. Okay? It can be summarized if you really want to just kind of get an idea of what the Old Covenant is about in a, in a nutshell. Read Deuteronomy 28 and you kind of get a feel. This is a covenant that essentially some would say was, I will. God would say, I will as long as you do. It's an I will as long as you do covenant. It's about God civilizing and developing and placing boundaries and respect and restraint, dietary restrictions, medical principles are applied throughout this law, civil restrictions are established, laws that govern nations are established through the old covenant, and relational well-being. Those are just some of the things. God is literally civilizing the world through the old covenant. We know it. Moses goes to a mount, goes to Mount Sinai, and we know it first really starts to show up in the Ten Commandments. He receives the Ten Commandments. But then by the time we get to the, the end of the uh, Old Testament and the Old Covenant, there's about 600 laws in place, somewhere around 600 different laws in place. Now, it's critical that you and I realize, now this is no new theology, it's critical that you and I realize that this covenant was for ancient Israel. Everyone say ancient Israel. It's the old covenant. It's for ancient Israel. This covenant is not for you. This is not your covenant. This is not a covenant for me. Now, it's interesting because it's hard for us to understand that, some of us. As much as we say that we're under a new covenant and that we're under the grace of God, that we live in this new covenant, some of us want to blend the old covenant and the new covenant together. But Jesus, Jesus wasn't trying to do that. And this is why they're so amped up. 
See, the temple leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the teachers of the law, not all of them. There were people like, there were people like Nicodemus, right, who was a Pharisee that seemed to get the understanding. But the vast majority of them understood what Jesus was doing. Jesus was saying the old covenant is coming to an end. I'm putting an end to it. The new covenant is not Judaism 2.0. It's not just an improvement on the old covenant. Jesus is saying this is a new covenant. This is something brand new. And they understood what he was doing when he made these statements, when he healed people in the temple, when he made statements about the temple. You can't even understand how outrageous this statement. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Speaking about himself, that is blasphemous for Jesus to say that. And we look at it and we don't see it as such a big deal, but his detractors saw him not as an... uh, Old covenant and an improvement on the old into the new. They knew that Jesus was the instead of covenant. Jesus was the instead of person. Jesus was introducing something new. This is why things like the Last Supper are so much more profound than maybe we understand. When Jesus, the night before, the night he is betrayed... The night before he is going to die on a cross, he takes the most, really one of the most significant spiritual celebrations of the old covenant, brings the disciples into a room and says, we're going to celebrate what together? We're going to celebrate the Passover, which was instituted during the Old Covenant at the beginning, really, of the Old Covenant in the book of Exodus. And it was a celebration of God being faithful to the Old Covenant that he had made with Israel and protected them and that the angel of death would pass over their homes. They celebrated this for a couple of centuries. It was, it was, it was outlandish that Jesus brought these guys into the room and said, from this day forward... This isn't about that anymore. This is about when you do this, when you get together, when you celebrate, something new is going on. And you do it in my name. You remember what I'm about to do because I am doing something new on the earth. And it's for all people. See, the old covenant is kind of a vehicle to get us to this place in history that God knew was coming. But it's time for the old to go. And the new to come. Now, it's an understandable question. Listen, it's definitely an understandable question to say, well, then what's the point of the Old Testament? What's the point of the Old Covenant? Why do we even talk about it? Or should we even talk about it? Scott, are you saying that you just don't read the Old Covenant anymore? You don't read the Old Testament? May it never be. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk in detail of the benefits of the Old Covenant, the benefits of the Old Testament, and why it's important for us to continue in our journey being informed that way. But for our purposes today, rest in the two things. One is we're going to get into more detail on that. But secondly, for our purposes today, understand the Old Covenant helps us be informed about what Jesus is up to. It is an informer. And when you find these scriptures in Matthew 12, where Jesus does these things, and these people are like, we got to destroy this guy. Because everything in their being 
was not about needing that to be improved, but they knew Jesus was trying to bring an end to something that they literally would give their lives for. Now, the second thing is the temple. And what we need to understand is God never needed a dwelling place like a, a, a permanent structure as a dwelling place. God never asked for it. It's kind of the permissive will of God. What happens here, it's kind of like some of you would remember in the Old Testament, the people want a king. They want a king. We want a king. For, for years, uh, God had been governing the nation of Israel through judges and leaders that way. And there were some, some amazing things that went on. But the people, because what happens to people including us, is it's like all the cool nations have kings. All the, all the wonderful nations seem to have kings, so why wouldn't we have a king? And God has this conversation with Nathan, and he says, hey, I don't, I don't need, I don't want them to have a king. They have me. But God has a permissive will here, and because they so want a king, he gives them Saul, right? So then we start this line of kings. And in this, it's kind of the same way with the temple. We start out with a tabernacle, we start out with a tent that's moving around through Egypt and mo- or through the wilderness and it goes into the promised land and we come to this place where David finally says, because cool nations, developed nations have temples, spiritual people have temples, everyone does it this way. We want a king and we want a temple. So with Moses, there seems to be this sense during Moses' day where God is saying, I'm fine because I am a mobile God and you cannot lock me in a building or a room. You cannot lock me in a niche of a building like I am seeing all over the world. I am a God who lives in a, in a temple that is not made with human hands, right? So this is what happens. You probably remember this throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Covenant. When it came to the tabernacle or the temple, these are the kinds of things that happened. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is a spirit, and God will not be reduced to one small kind of image or idol. So then David says, it just doesn't seem right. He comes along, he's the king, and this is what he says, interpreted by Eugene Peterson in the message. He says, look at this, 2 Samuel 72. He says this to Nathan, look at this, here I am, comfortable, in a luxurious house of cedar, and the chest of God sits in a plain tent. The chest of God, the presence of God as they knew it, sits in a tent, sits in a Winnebago out in the, out in the yard, and I'm living in this palace that's amazing. It only makes sense that we would build a temple. This is God's response to Nathan, which we don't usually pay much attention to, but this is what God says in 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 7. I've not dwelled in a house From the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving. Everyone say moving. God is always moving. I've been moving. Say it again, moving. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say, 
to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built for me a house of cedar? God seemed to like camping out. It was okay for, with him. But anyway, David ends up being the one not to build the temple, but God says, okay, again, permissive will. Okay, again, go ahead, build a temple. Because everybody does it that way. Just go ahead and build a temple. So David, he can't, God says, you have, you're a person of war. So you're not going to be the one to build a temple, but you can raise all the funds for it. You can collect all the materials. So that happens. He says, but your son Solomon, he'll build the temple. So, of course, Solomon builds the temple. It's magnificent and it's glorious. He builds this beautiful temple. And what we don't, what we might not understand is that many of the characteristics of the temple are very similar to the characteristics of all of the pagan temples that are being built around that time. It's hard to imagine that because of the detail that the scripture has and gives. There's porches and chambers and courts and living quarters and there's an altar for sacrifices. And then there's a God vault, which pagan temples had God vaults. Claire and I were having uh, dinner one evening in Italy, right outside of one of the most famous pagan court or temples in the world, the Pantheon. This is the Roman uh, temple, the Pantheon, which was built a little after 100 AD, somewhere in there. And when you go inside, it's got these niches, these God vaults. There's 12 of them. And when it was originally built, there were the 12, what were known as the 12 most prominent gods of of the Roman Empire. And you go in there and there's these statues and that's how it was. But it's interesting because the temple that the Jews had, it had a God vault. It had what was called the Holy of Holies. It had the place where the presence of God was, but there was no image. There was no statue. Because again, God will not be confined to just a space or to a statue or to some kind of idol. Because God is a spirit. Most of us don't know that Solomon would go on to build somewhere around 700 temples while he's king. One for each of his wives, his foreign wives, in honor of those pagan gods. So the most magnificent one he builds is the one that we're talking about. But what we don't consider much is he was busy building a lot of temples for a lot of gods. And of course, it's not too long after that that Nebuchadnezzar comes in out of really God's promise, reflecting back on things like Deuteronomy 28, and takes the people of Israel captive and destroys the temple. It'll have to be rebuilt. But its uniqueness of this temple is that God doesn't stay stuck in a place. Now we read this and we think, well, yeah, there's sacred spaces. A lot of us think this is a sacred space. I would agree with you. This is a sacred space. I'd agree. Some of us have special places, but you can feel how sacred and special they thought this. This was more than sacred to them. The temple to the religious leaders by the time Jesus comes on the scene is the center of the universe. And then Jesus says it. He has the nerve to say it. I tell you that something greater 
then the temple is here. And they consider it blasphemy, and before the conversation's over, they're trying to figure out how to kill him, which they ultimately, obviously, will do. By the time Jesus shows up, Jesus is pretty convinced that the whole temple system is corrupt. That's the way he saw it. There were annual temple taxes, which were basically a way to leverage money out of especially the poor. There were money changers in the temple. All of us remember the story, or most of us remember the story of Jesus flipping over tables it's out of these things where, where people would come because they had to pay taxes, and they had to pay taxes, interestingly enough, in a coin that was specific for the temple tax, but it was a secular coin that was used for the temple tax, which is kind of interesting that you'd have to have a special coin if it wasn't a special coin. But it was an opportunity for the the money changers and the religious leaders and those in power to take advantage of people because if you've ever gone to a foreign country and you've had to change your money, you know you can be taken advantage of. They decide the rate. They decide how much money your dollar is worth. And they did it. And on top of that, you would have to buy a sacrificial animal for the temple, and they would really gouge you. You know during a pandemic you can be gouged, but man, you can really be gouged when you are a pilgrim that has traveled long distance to come to the temple. You don't have a lamb or a dove or a, anything else with you that you can use for a sacrifice. So you've got to buy something, and you can only buy it at the temple because it's got to be A1-approved temple kind of animal, Right? And Jesus is watching this, and he's not happy with it, but he's okay because he's giving them notice. This is all coming to an end. Thank you for getting me to this place. Now, Jesus predicted with incredible provision, or precision so many different things. But when it comes to bringing closure to the Old Testament, the Old, or the Old Covenant, There's two things. Jesus prophesies his own death, burial, and resurrection. Nothing is bigger to end the old covenant, right? Because some of you have wondered, when did that ever end? When did that whole sacrificial thing end? And the second thing is found in Matthew chapter 24 and also in Luke 21. And some of you are familiar with this scripture. And when you have heard it in church or you've watched Christian TV, or you've watched different things, you were sure that it meant what they were trying to make it mean about the second coming. Let me read part of the scripture. I don't, I don't think we have this on the board. Just listen up. Matthew 24, 1 through 3, Jesus is going to prophesy. As Jesus came out of the temple and he was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, many of us have heard this scripture and we're convinced it's about the second coming. Now, I'm not going to say there's not a second meaning to it. But I'm here to tell you that this scripture's already been fulfilled. 
That's Matthew 24, 1 through 3. And then I'm going to jump over to Luke 21, 20 and read on a little bit. It says, and when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it is the desolate, that the desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains and those out in the country must not enter. For these are the days of innocence as the fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be a great distress on the earth and the wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. They will be trampled on by the Romans. 70 AD. The temple would be utterly destroyed by the Romans. General Titus would surround the city of Jerusalem. People would be coming on pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem. Titus had a strategy to let the city continue to fill and to literally begin to starve the masses of people inside of the city gates to contain what he was thinking as a Jewish revolt. The the Jewish historian Josephus said that it was somewhere, in his estimation, 1.1 million Jews would die in Jerusalem during during this war of AD 70. You can look it up online. You don't have to look at any kind of Christian stuff. Just look it up. Titus war with the Jews, AD 70. And all of what Jesus is saying is specifically laid out there. Many of them would be led off as slaves into captivity for, to other nations. The reference to people not coming into the city better to stay on the hills was, do not be a pilgrim coming into the city because there will be, Jesus saw it, there will be a strategy. Now, it's interesting because this is so accurate that many people that do not want to endorse the validity of what Jesus has to say in these sections are convinced that this was written later than it was really written by Matthew and Luke and, and others because this is so specifically accurate, they know that if this literally was something that Jesus said when he was alive, with this, speci- this specifically, they said it was so specific it had to be looked back on, which has been proven time and time again not to be true. Jesus was prophesying what was going to happen to people that were even in his midst. The time of the Gentiles, the Romans, were going to invade Jerusalem And it would be literally a massacre. The end of the old had come. And Jesus wanted everybody to know it, including you and I. Romans 6, 13 and 14 says this, says, Sin has no dominion over you and I, since we are no longer under the law, No longer under the old covenant, but we are under grace. Let me say it to you one more time and let it just pour into your life. Sin has no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Our goal as a people will consistently be to love Jesus and to love like Jesus 
Jesus came to bring new life to each and every one of us and has offered that to each and every one. If you've never received new life that Jesus offers, I just encourage you right even today, just pray and say, God, I accept your grace. I accept your love. I accept your forgiveness. I accept the life that you have for me. I refuse to live under some old way, even in my mind, that I've set up. I receive your goodness. I have a question as we, as, as we pull this together here, and it's simply this. Where am I living under the old covenant, and what will I do about that? Where am I living under the old covenant, and what will I do about that? This is what I want you to consider. I want you to consider this in two ways. I think we live under the old covenant with ourselves. I think we put rules and regulations on ourselves that are not things God is putting on us. And some of us beat ourselves up and it's living under an old regime. And Jesus is saying, I took that for you. You can give that to me. I'll carry it. And then some of us do it with other people. We put things on them and we have rules and regulations that we don't even live under ourselves, but we put it on other people. And Jesus, I want you to know, came and said, this isn't that anymore. I came to bring life and life to the full. The enemy came to kill, rob, steal, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Amen. So God, we receive your abundant life. On this day, we thank you so much that we're living under your new covenant. In Jesus' name. Where there is Christ, there is hope. And where there is hope, there's more to be written. My days unfold, touched by your grace. I need you, God, on every So let this be my life, be my all in all, start with Jesus, and stay with Jesus, no matter the storm, no matter what comes, you always be more than enough, so stay with
want to give you this blessing today of always Jesus. On Monday, always Jesus. On Tuesday, always Jesus. Go ahead, say it. On Wednesday, always Jesus. On Thursday, always Jesus. On Friday, on Saturday, right? And remember this mobile God within you, that you are the temple not made with human hands. And so wherever you go, You're bringing Jesus. So may God remind you on every day this week that that is the reality of who you are and who you're bringing. That is your new covenant. You and Jesus, everywhere you go, always Jesus. Amen? Amen. So may God bless you and keep you, and may God make God's own face shine upon you and give you peace, and you bring Jesus. Amen. Love you all.